We're reading today from Luke chapter 14 as we look at the look of a disciple. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. <coughs> Excuse me. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything that you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And let me remind you, I just saw this, remind you that at the end of the message, we will be receiving communion together. Um, if you didn't get your elements on the way in, you might want to slip out and, uh, and pick that up and, and prepare at home as well. The central truth of the message, Jesus invites us to come unto me. And when we come unto him, when we answer the call to come unto me, that's the place where our sins are forgiven. Our lives begin the process of being rebuilt our hurt is ministered to, and everything changes because at that point we, we uh, uh, are born again. Jesus invites us to come unto me, and then he tells us to come after me. And I'm concerned that in the American church, we have a lot of people that are delighted to come unto me to have their problems ministered to, but they have failed to understand the command, now that you've come unto me, come after me. Come and follow me. Now let's talk first of all about the meaning of disciple. Um, I, I have been disturbed all my life about people who describe Christians by certain characteristics. You know, um, I had a, a, a friend that preached a whole series on carnal Christians and spiritual Christians. And I was really burdened because what he did unintentionally, he created the option for us. You can be a spiritual Christian and follow Jesus, or you can be a carnal Christian and just kind of live your own way. And I began to talk with him. I said, whenever you talk about the idea of a carnal Christian, he said, well, it's in scripture. I said, I know, but it's it's in scripture to tell us not to do that. Don't do that. He says, when you do these things, you're carnal 
And you're not living the way a child of God ought to. Now, we all have frailty. We all have weaknesses. Uh, We have to remember that we're but dust. That's the frame that he's given us. Until we get to heaven, we are but dust. And uh, he, he, he knows that. He knows that we are weak as water apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. But we have to move away from this easy discipleship that rises up, it raises its ugly head at various times in church history. And then you have the spiritual part of the church and the carnal part of the church. We're all fine. We're all part of the same family. Just some of us are better than others. And that's not the way the church was intended to be. I know that we don't all have the same level of discipleship. We don't all have the same level of discipline. We don't all have the same level of victory. And that's up to us. That's up to us. I'm going to bring up later that I believe we are just as close to God as we want to be. I really do. I believe that each of us is just as close to God as we want to be because you can, you can figure it out if it's, you know, if it's getting up at 4 a.m. to go hunting or fishing or if it's to go to a theater to watch a three-hour movie but you can't handle a 90-minute church service. It, it boils down to just what's important to you. I mean, we're as close to God as we want to be. But what I want you to understand is that You may be a Christian living at this level, but please understand it's never okay. It's never okay. You're saying I'm not going to heaven? No, I'm saying if you're saved, you're going to heaven. But reward is what awaits us. And we want to receive a reward when we get to heaven for our work. See, we're saved by grace. You say, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. Oh, yes, it does, because we're saved by grace, but we are rewarded for our works. My reward in heaven won't be based on grace other than it's the foundation of my life. My reward in heaven, if I get one, and I pray that I do, it will be based on how well I serve the Lord. And it's the same with you. We're all going to heaven on equal footing, saved by the blood of Jesus, through grace, by faith, But heaven will be different for each of us because our reward will be generated by our works. See, the thief on the cross had absolutely no works to present. But Jesus said, today you're going to heaven with me because that's by grace through faith. And I shouldn't say that he doesn't have any works to present because his story has been told for 2000 years and he's generating a reward just by that moment of faith. But I, you, Hey, now I want you to stop this. You're distracting me. Now let's get back to the notes. I'm not going to put up with this, but what does disciple mean? What does disciple mean? Well, the word, the Greek word disciple comes from the word mathetes. And that should remind you of a word. It's the word mathematics. We get the word mathematics from the word disciple. Disciple, mathetes means learner. And you know how it is with math. Math is structured. And on a certain level, math cannot be broken. Math, two and two will always be four. Um, you know, your gazentas will always be right. You know, four gazenta, eight, two times, all of that. I mean, math is, is structured and it will be standard. And a learner is a person that learns this is this is this is this. And we draw the English word mathematics from the word discipleship. 
That's why we can never say that, oh, I, you know, I just serve Jesus any way I want to. I, I hate those videos that say I hate religion. I just love Jesus. That's, you know, 98% of the time, I think that's just an excuse to live any way we want to live. Just do anything we want to do because I don't like religion. I love Jesus. But religion is a related word. And, and we, one of the words for religion is we, we, liturgos, we get liturgy from it. Religion, like mathematics, has a structure to it. And a disciple is someone that's learning the language of a new kingdom. Oh, this is good. I wish, never mind. We, I grew up in a generation that said it pays to serve Jesus, but as I got older, I had to realize it pays to serve Jesus, but it also costs to serve Jesus. This is what my pastor used to say. The bitterness of poor quality lingers long after the sweetness of cheap price has dissipated. Now, he didn't talk with words like that, so I know he was quoting somebody, but I don't know who he was quoting. But the bitterness of poor quality lingers long after the sweetness of cheap price has dissipated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. This is the, from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. I was handed that book when I was 18 years old and told to read it every year. I haven't read it every year, but it is a book that brings the call of discipleship back to our hearts. Um, for those of you that don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, a Lutheran pastor, and was executed, uh, hanged naked on Hitler's gallows because of his stand for the gospel and uh, his stand for, for morality that had disappeared in Germany. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. When Jesus calls a man, he said later in the book, he bids him come and die. The Cost of Discipleship was written in 1937. That's the English title. The German title I won't try to pronounce, but it meant following or the act of following. Discipleship is a learner who follows Jesus. Now, let's, let's kind of go full bore into the message. Um, I want us to learn today that discipleship has four dynamic words now, I'm presenting the word as a concept, and then I'll explain what I mean. But I, I hope that you will take these words or the concepts, write it down, whatever fits best the way your mind works. And I want you to understand when we're talking about being a disciple of Jesus, it, it's more than just coming to Sunday school. It's more than even just coming to church, as important as that is. It's more than paying your tithe or doing whatever you do. Those things are important, but these words are the essence of what discipleship is. is. Uh, the first word, and, and this is in your notes, you don't have to write this down. As we work through it, you'll see this. The first word is crucifixion. To understand what it means to be a disciple, you need to understand crucifixion. The second word is construction. A disciple is not stagnant. Something is being built in him and through him. 
The third word is the word conflict. We are in a battle of the ages. And the third word almost doesn't fit, but it's a warning against cautiousness. Cautiousness. Now, there is proper caution, but then there's overly cautiousness that can produce uh, some bad effects. So crucifixion, construction, conflict, cautiousness. And these are the commands. For crucifixion, Jesus said, take up your cross in this passage. The construction tells us to take up our tools. He talks about the cost of building a structure. The conflict tells, uh, tells us to take up our weapons um, because he said no man goes to war without counting the cost. If he's outnumbered 20,000 to 10,000, he's got to ask some hard questions. Can we win this war? And we've got to remember that one of the pictures of God restoring our lives is from the book of Nehemiah, where those that were building the wall, it says they had a tool in one hand and their weapons in the other hand. And then the cautiousness, he says, we must take up our responsibility. We don't let the what ifs keep us from serving the Lord. And these words ought to elicit in us a changed lifestyle and a counterintuitive response. A changed lifestyle and a counterintuitive response. By that I mean when we follow Jesus, our response will not always be what we think it will be. It, our weapons will not always be what we think they will be. I love in the TV series, The Chosen, where Jesus is talking to Simon Zelotes or Simon the Zealot, um, who was trained to fight the Romans and do war with his sacred um, knife, his sacred sword. Uh, and Jesus asked for it and Jesus impressed, he was impressed with it, talked about what a great weapon it was. And then he took it and threw it in the lake. And he said to Simon, yeah, you won't find this in your concordance. This was just in the TV show. He said to Simon, I have a different sword for you. I have a better sword for you. And he said, are you willing to come along and, and fight the battle that's yours? He said, well, I was more willing when I had my sacred sword. But yes, I will do that. Now, let me just say this. I, I'd wanted to preach a little bit about this, but I don't think we're going to have time. There, there are, there are, there's the idea of the multifaceted nature of Christianity. Um, and what I'm, what I'm trying to explain to you is that you can't just take a verse and say, this is what a disciple is. You've got to take all the pictures. You remember when we talked about salvation? We said that salvation is not an assembly line that you go through and get stamped with all of these things. This is what happens to you all at once. And it's explained from a different perspective. You are regenerated. You are justified, you are sanctified, you are adopted, you are converted, you are glorified, you are redeemed, you are elected, and so forth. That's not even all the words. This is not something that, boy, this month I was elected, next month I'll be sanctified. No, it's, it's a beautiful rainbow picture of what God does in you in this thing called conversion. The same with the Spirit in filling. We've spent two weeks talking about that. To be baptized in the Spirit, um, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon you as a believer. But it also says that not only are we baptized, but the Spirit comes upon you. The Spirit falls upon you. The Spirit is poured out upon you. The Spirit fills you. The Spirit is received by you. And all of these things are talking about the same experience from a different perspective. 
You see the Spirit coming down. You see the Spirit welling up. You see the Spirit gathering around us. You see the Spirit falling to hold us. You see us receiving the Holy Spirit and embracing it. But it's all the same thing. Now, I want you to understand that's what discipleship is like too. These are not the only qualifications of discipleship in the Scripture. But they are four that Jesus put together. And this is one of the paragraphs that I call the hard teachings of Jesus. Because after Jesus taught these things, people would leave. You talk about the fringe dropping out. Jesus lost the fringe. And only those that would remain committed stayed. But let's look at the four characteristics that are, that are typified by these four words we gave. The first word is crucifixion. And we see that Jesus wants disciples who will learn to worship at any cost. Worship at any cost. Now, I'm not talking about just the act of worship, but I'm telling you, you know, where we sing songs, we don't even take that seriously. You know, we'll stay out in the foyer, out in the parking lot and talk with people till the worship's over. You know, we'll, you say, Pastor, you're getting a little too personal. Well, I'm just saying what Corey said. <laughs> and I, no, and I know, I know, you don't have to come in and explain to me, well, I was ministering to somebody. I know that kind of thing happens. But I know, because I've done it. I told you when I was in seminary how I used to, I used to stay out of church for the preliminaries because they bothered me so much. And I thought I was raising a higher standard. And what I was doing is just entertaining a spirit of rebellion where I said, I'll, I'll embrace what I think you do well and I'll reject what I think you do poorly. And that's, God had to really deal with me. But he, this, I'm not talking about that kind of worship. I'm talking about the idea of worshiping him with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, loving him with everything that is within me. And he used two words to describe it. The first word is the word hate. And the second word is the word cross. Now, um, the, first of all, the meaning of hate I, I was, it was explained to me when I was a teenager, well, it just means a lesser love. You know, hate means you love your, to hate your parents means you, you love your parents less than you love Jesus. And while that's technically true, Jesus certainly is not commanding us to hate our parents or hate anybody. But it, it, the, the, this idea of hate was a word of both comparison on one hand and contrast on the other, he was saying that compared to your love for God, every other love ought to be secondary. That's what hate meant. You know, don't go home and murder your parents today, uh, like the you know the brothers that did that a few years ago. Don't do that because Jesus isn't calling you to hate anybody, but He is calling you to love Him so much that every other love, by comparison, is secondary. It's also a word of contrast where he says, you have these two loves in your heart, but this one takes priority over this one. This one that takes priority doesn't lessen uh, or, or dishonor this one. For instance, if I love Jesus with all of my heart, that'll make me love my parents more. If I love uh, Jesus with all of my heart, that'll make me love my spouse more. That'll make me love my children more. Um, you may work for Shell Oil Company, but that doesn't mean that you hate Exxon. 
That just means you have a priority toward Shell. When you're on vacation, you're going to buy from Shell because I work for Shell. But what do you do if you're below empty and the only one that says next gas station, 141 miles, and there's an Exxon on the corner? You're going to Exxon. You don't hate Exxon. You're not going to go over there and blow it up. You're saying this is my preference, but I got to have gas. It, 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 biblical hate when used like this, doesn't make anything ugly or less in your life. It sets a priority. Jesus should be our number one, okay? Um, and, and I, I want to say this, and my wife is here, so I'm, I, 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 I think she can verify what I'm saying. She knows and knew from the first day of our marriage that Jesus was number one, and she came after Jesus, but I think she'll tell you, don't ask her on a bad day when I'm, when I'm not doing good. But I think she'll tell you that loving Jesus more than anything makes me love her more than if she was number one. She knows that when I say, honey, I'm going to go spend some time in prayer or I need to get in the word or I need to do this, that or the other. She never says, oh, you never spend time with me. Because she knows that even though she might want to be with me, right? <laughs> Hopefully, even though she wants to spend time with me, she knows that the time I give her will be better after I give my time to Jesus. My children know that loving Jesus as the greatest love in my life has not made them less. They know that he loves me the way he loves me because he loves Jesus the way he loves Jesus. So he said, you've got to understand if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to worship me even though it will make relationships seem strained at first. I don't know if you were here 27 years ago when I became pastor, but my first Sunday as a pastor, I said, I just, I said before you vote, I said, you need to understand that I love Jesus more than anything in the world. My prayer time comes first. My wife and children come second. I said, the best I can offer you is third place in my life. And I said, if you don't want a pastor that puts you in third place, you need to vote me no and go on to the next candidate. And the church understood, and, and, and you have been so gracious to me. You don't expect me to do everything. You don't expect me to be everything. You don't expect me to accomplish everything because you know that my first priority is to pray and to seek the Lord, to be in the Word. And I think most of you that have been here through the years will agree that pastor's been a better pastor because he didn't put us first, he put the Lord first. Now, I'm telling you, that works in individual relationships, that works in families, that works in churches. So he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to have the kind of worship in your heart where everything else is secondary. And you know what? If you do that right, if you do that right, everybody on the lower level will understand this is best. This is best. This is best. And uh, now I know sometimes people are just selfish and nobody feels that they've been treated right. 
I remember one great leader in the Christian church, and I'm sure his reward in heaven is great, but he neglected his own children to win the children of the world. And this is what he said. He said, I've prayed and God heard my prayer. I said, Lord, I will win the children of the world if you'll take care of my children. And you know what happened? His children grew up bitter, angry, resentful. Now they've come to the Lord full circle, but here was a man that did perhaps more than any man to win children in the 20th century, but he lost his own family because he didn't understand that to hate your family doesn't mean write them off. It means live your love for Jesus in such a way that when daddy comes home or mama comes home, they will know that daddy loves me so much because he loves Jesus so much. And mama loves me so much because she loves Jesus so much. I've known men that mistreated their wives in the name of the Lord. Well, you know, Jesus got to be first. You haven't put Jesus first. You put you first. And, and, and women, I want to say this, you need, if you love Jesus and you have a ministry, serve the Lord, follow that ministry fervently, but be the best wife and mother you can possibly be when you go home. When you get home, when you're behind closed doors, what Jesus is saying is, I want you to be the best husband you can be, the best wife you can be, the best parent you can be, the best friend you can be. But the only way you can do that is to be the best lover of Jesus you can be. Then he used another phrase. He said, take up your cross. Now we, we treat cross, the cross, we don't understand the, the brutality of the cross. I mean, we do. I, and, and please don't go home and take your crosses off or, you know, I, there's a cross on my ring. I, 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 jewelry's not wrong. But we wear the cross as a sign of affection for the Lord. We wear the cross to say we're following him. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with that at all. Most of the world religions have a symbol that's associated into jewelry if they wear jewelry. Nothing wrong with that. But I just want us to be reminded every now and then that the cross wasn't always a beautiful piece of jewelry. The cross was a sign of shame. The Bible says that God loved us while despising the cross. And we need to realize that when he says take up your cross, he's not talking about going to the jewelry shop and getting a big one to wear. He's saying that you need to understand that you take up your cross, which means you embrace the fellowship of his suffering. And we're going to talk about this one day too. All of us carry stuff. So we all carry the cross but we also carry baggage and we also carry the, the, the fruit of bad decisions. You know, I've had people tell me that their cross was being, being beautiful. I'm, you know, it's just me being beautiful is just a cross I have to bear because people look at me on the outside instead of the inside. And I, you know, and I thought, boy, we got problems here, you know. <laughs> And, um, you know, uh, my, my cross is just being so smart because nobody can understand how smart I am. And I'm constantly misunderstood. That's my cross. No, 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 no. Your cross is what you carry for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You may also carry the consequences of sin. You may carry the baggage of being mistreated. You may carry the baggage of racism. You may carry the baggage of sexual abuse, but that's not your cross. And, and God can help you with that. Now, we also sometimes are carrying a thorn in the flesh. And that thorn in the flesh could be lifetime. That thorn in the flesh could be temporary. There's no rules or restrictions on how long you carry a thorn in the flesh. It's not necessarily the will of God for you to always carry a thorn in the flesh. You guys still with me? It's not necessarily that you have to carry baggage because we can get some things resolved. But it is always the will of God for us to carry the cross. It's always the will of God for us to be inconvenienced in some area of life because of Jesus. Well, it's good. It's good. Let me wrap it up by saying this. Jesus is our number one. Whatever is number two is loved more as number two if I keep Jesus at number one. Okay, I'm lost. I don't know where I am in my outline. Here I am, okay. Um, A.W. Tozier, talking about bearing the cross, said this. I love this. A.W. Tozier said, a person crucified, he said, there's three things about a person who lives the crucified life. He says, a person being crucified faces only one direction. A person that is crucified is not going back. And a person that is crucified has no further plans of their own. And I, I think that's a challenge for us to live that way. I'm not fussing at you that you don't. It, it's a challenge. But I, if I am living a crucified life, I'm facing one direction. I'm not going back. And I have no further plans on, of my own. Okay. Um, I love this. To say yes to Jesus is to make the last independent decision of your, I misquoted, of your life. That's what Adrian Rogers says. To say yes to Jesus is to make the last independent decision of your life. Okay, let's go to the second word, construction. Okay, he wants, um, wants us to understand crucifixion. If we're disciples of Jesus, we must worship at any cost. It's a life of prioritizing our time, our affection, our love. It's a time of bearing the cross. The second word is the word construction. He wants disciples who not only worship at any cost, but work at any cost. He said, no man starts a building project without figuring out if he is sufficiently able to finish the project financially. He's got, to, he's got to count the cost before he begins. And this was the image of a tower. And Jesus said, before you follow me, he said, this is not just a decision you make on the spur of the moment. You need to count the cost and realize that it will cost you everything to follow me. It's a plan that God gives us. It's a partnership we enter into. And there is a persistence that he expects he says, one that puts their hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Here's the third word, the word conflict. Okay, so he wants disciples who will worship at any cost, that will work at any cost. But he also is looking for disciples that will engage in the war at any cost. 
He says, if you are about to engage in a battle, he, I'm glad he said a man with 10,000 considers can he handle 20,000. You know, because I want to tell you, you're always outnumbered, it seems, in the kingdom of God. There's that beautiful remnant principle. It has been said that well over a billion, closer to two billion people may serve the Lord on planet Earth. But it doesn't always feel like that. Doesn't always feel like that. A lot of times you feel that you're alone, especially when you're part of the remnant. And he says, I want you to know that it's going to cost you. You are going to suffer persecution. If they hated me, they will hate you. If the world doesn't understand me, they're not going to understand you. And we get so angry at people who have a different political view, uh, at, at people who pull for a different sports team, that people that drive uh, like their eyes have just been gouged out. I mean, we, you think of the things that enrage us. You think of the things that enrage us and Jesus says, you, you, you are outgunned and outnumbered for the rest of your life. Are you able to fight in the strength of the Lord? Are you able to quit threatening lawsuits? Are you able to let go of the past? Are you ready to quit assigning intent to people's hearts? Are, are you ready to, as, as I, Isaiah said, are you ready to, he says, the reason God isn't moving upon you is because of one little finger that you keep pointing at everybody else. He said, are you willing to withdraw the finger? Let me ask you three questions. Does Jesus have everything you have? If he's not Lord of everything, he's not Lord of all. That was a famous song in the 70s. If you're not Lord of everything, then you're not Lord of it all. And we sang that, and we sang that, and we sang that. And then there, there was a decade of discovery that there's a lot of people who call him Lord, but he's not Lord of everything. Is there anything in your life he does not have access to? Oh, he's, he's Lord, but I'm just, you know... Eh. There was a pastor in Texas, spirit-filled church, man that had, was ordained in the ministry. The church kept growing and growing, then it would hit a plateau and fall back. And it was like the church was doing everything right. The preacher was a phenomenal preacher. The services were absolutely life-changing, but the church would reach a point and then it would just begin to settle down. A missionary friend of mine was, um, I forget now, nah, I better, I can't remember if he said he was in the service or, his, or a friend of his was the one doing the preaching. But anyway, he was there preaching and he had been asked by the leadership of the church, either my missionary friend or his friend had been asked, we just, we just seem to hit a glass ceiling. We just can't grow beyond that. And he was there for spiritual renewal. They said, we talked to pastor and pastor doesn't have any idea. Would you just pray with us that we'll know it was probably us. What do we need to do to deal with this glass ceiling we keep coming up against? And during the service, the Holy Spirit would begin to anoint the singing and there's a fervency. And Levelands, whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon our worship, it's not just those of us who are filled with the Spirit that respond. Demons get angry. 
there's a lot of spiritual dynamic going on in worship. And he said during the worship service, he said it was one of the most phenomenal services I'd been in in America. He said, and I just looked over here to the side, not you guys, but just to the side. He says, and there was just a, a four by eight sheet of panel that, you know, you could see the grain, the wood grain in the panel. That was the design of the church. And he said, I saw the grain of that panel morph into a hideous demonic face. And he said it was furious. And he said, the, the, he said it was like a, it wasn't a visible smoke, but it was like something that just came out over the congregation and smothered their worship. He said, that makes no sense. He couldn't figure it out. And he began to talk to the pastor and to the leadership. And he said, well, let me tell you what I saw. And he talked to that panel and they went over in, in, a, in a leadership meeting that night. They went over to the panel and he said, this is the panel where I see it. And he said, what's on the other side of this panel? And somebody said, well, that's the pastor's office. It's, it's nothing bad over there. It's the pastor's office. And they, he said, Pastor, do you mind if we go in your office and look on the other side? And they measured so they'd be at the exact spot. They went in. It was fine. It was a picture of Jesus on the wall. Everything was fine. And the Spirit of God began to rise up in that man of God. The pastor said, yeah, yeah, feel free to look. Everything was in order. And then he went to the wall and he realized that there was a hole, not a hole, but a, a hollow panel behind that panel that wasn't anywhere else on the wall. The, asked for the pastor's permission to remove it. And he said, well, that's not necessary. You're going to have to do all this damage. But to make a long story short, they removed it. And there was a stash of pornography that the pastor had been putting in that hiding place for years one of the most phenomenal preachers you would ever want to hear with one of the leading churches of that time. And this was decades ago. So please don't go online and try to look it up. And, and um, in fact, it was never made public. Um, the, the pastor ended up resigning and the board handled it and never made it public. But the pastor was absolutely addicted to pornography and he figured the safest place to hide it was in my church office. But I want to tell you, every time God started doing something, the stronghold that had not been surrendered began to show itself. So I, I want to ask you again, is there anything in your life that he does not have access to? Is there any file on your computer that he does not have access to? Is there any file cabinet in your office that he does not have access to? Is there any relationship that God does not have access to? Because we are called to war at any cost and no man can serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other or you will love this one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot live a two-faced life. Now we all have weaknesses. We all have moments that we fail. We even may have things in our life that they're, 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 they've still got a claw in it, but we're working on it. I'm not talking about that. But when you make a decision that he will not be Lord over this, that is one of the most disqualifying marks of a disciple. Let's go on to the last thing. That word cautiousness. He says, I want disciples. Now he said, I want them to worship at any cost. 
Um, he, he said, I, I want them to work at any cost. I want them to war at any cost. And then he almost changes gears. He said, I want them to be willing to witness at any cost. He starts talking about saltiness. Now he called us salt and life. And I believe, loved ones, what the church ought to do, and the church has done this throughout her history, the church has been the conscience of a nation. The church has been the conscience of a city. I know I've told this story before and I'm going to tell it one more time and I, I, I hope I never have to tell it again. But uh, we were talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the other pastors that ended up being, uh, losing his life said, we did not want to work against the government. We did not want to work against the challenge of what was being done to the Jews he said, so we just, we just chose what we wanted to support, and we did that. He says, our church was located near a track, and with time, uh, in the late 30s and early 40s, it began to bring prisoners to the concentration camp, and they would go right by our church. He said, at first, nothing happened, but then the Jews that were being transported to almost certain death when they saw a church, they had heard all their lives that Christians say they're the friends of Jews. So they would begin to cry out to the Christians in the church, help us, save us. And he said, do you, and somebody said, what did your church do? And with tears in his eyes, he said, we sang louder. We sang louder. And loved ones, I'm afraid we're in an age in America right now, and I don't ever want this to be said of our church. We say things like abortion's wrong, but. We say things like human trafficking is wrong, but. I want to tell you, we need to get our butts lined up and let them walk right out the door. Loved ones, I want to tell you, we, we had such momentum going into our pro-life ministry uh, uh, last January and February before the pandemic. But I want to tell you with everything that happened, the racism talk, the, the hatred talk, the political talk, the injustice talk, all, I'm, I'm not saying those things are not real, but the enemy knows how to get a church to just sing louder. And we're not going to be a church that covers the sins of a nation by singing louder. You say, well, we've got this problem. Yeah. And we're going to work on that problem but we're not going to sing louder. Well, pastor, this isn't right either. Well, then we need to work on that, but we're not going to sing louder. We need to understand that if we're going to be disciples, we've got to let our light shine no matter what it costs us. And I want to tell you something else. I'm going to say it one more time. There are probably a half dozen legitimate causes that has brought our nation under the judgment of God. But I want to tell you, they aren't all equivalent, um, morally equivalent. They aren't all the same thing. And we need to understand that we have things that are this, and we have things that are this, and we have things that are this. And as long as we're attacking them all, God will bless us. But we will never become one of those churches that chooses to fight battles that are convenient. We will never be a church that lets go of racial, um, the fight against racial prejudice. But we're never going to be known only for fighting against racial prejudice. 
We, we know that there is injustice in some of our systems, but we're never going to be a church that's known for just fighting the man. We know abortion is wrong, and I think it is the number one sin in our nation. It was the sin that broke the back of Israel and Judah. Both Israel and Judah came under judgment. The breaking point was the slaughter of the innocents. And loved ones, you're in the wrong church if you want to say, well, it's wrong, but so is all this, or we'll get to it sooner or later. No, we have our hands full. We see the enemies on the, on the horizon, the, the prejudice, the social injustice, the uh, whatever else you want to throw into the mix. But we will not let our focus be tainted by letting some of the challenge go. You say, well, we, then we got to fight everything? Yeah. If, you, if you'll let us, if you'll let us, if you'll agree to take up the battle and not just have your pet projects, if you'll let us, I want to tell you, God is saying, give me a church full of disciples that will, that will worship me at any cost, that will work for me at any cost, that will war for me at any cost, that will witness for me at any cost. We let our own agendas fall by the side and we say, Lord, we will follow you as you lead us. Then I want to tell you, we've got phenomenal days ahead and we're going to see a harvest unlike we've seen in our lifetimes or even read about. You say, well, I love Jesus and I just don't like you pressuring me. Well, I, I'm not trying to pressure you. I, I'm honestly not. Because I realize anything I can talk you into, somebody else can talk you out of. It doesn't work. But I am asking the Holy Spirit to come and speak to our church and give us an agenda that we can pursue. That's why we've given you these five prayer points. Just like we gave you the four prayer points that we prayed the last five years. We can focus on these things. You can be a Democrat and focus on these things. You can be a Republican and focus on these things. <clears throat> You can be a Celtic fan and focus on these things. In fact, you can be any fan except, never mind, I'm not going to say it. I'm teasing. I'm just teasing. Those of you who don't know me, that's a longstanding joke. <coughs> but loved ones, we're not going back to the way it was. We're not looking to recover what we had 18 months ago. What we're saying is, Lord, this is a new day. It's a new fight. It's a new level. Okay, I'm going to tell you this, and, and then we're going to communion. I, th I think I'm okay on time. I asked the Lord, how do I live this out? Like a few years ago, the Lord said, for the rest of your life at Christian Life, there are so many things that are part of shepherding the flock. There's, there are so many things that are part of the whole counsel of God. But I want everything that you do to be geared to lead people to a greater life of intimacy with the Lord. So whatever we preach about, if we preach about ingrown toenails or we preach about the resurrection, we're trying to bring people back to a place of intimacy with the Lord. But this is what the Lord spoke to me. And I, I got permission a, a few weeks ago and I got permission um, from him. I said, Lord, I know we have a new day. I know this is a new era. I know this is a new time. 
I've got a church full of people that love you. What do you want me to do? How, how do I go forward? I, I know the function of the church. And I'm going to just tell you what the Lord told me. I'm not telling you this is for you, but I am telling you that God will talk to you like this if you'll, if you'll let him do it. Um, I had a scripture I thought I wrote. Now I don't see it, but I, you know, I'll give it to you later. But I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I said, I'm... I'm, I, I'm I'm closer to 70 than I am 60. I don't know how many years I've got life. What are you after in me? And this is what the Lord spoke to me. He said, there are three things that I want you to pursue with all your energy. And as you pursue them, I want you to practice these things. I want you to do these things. He said, it's not that these things are not in existence in your life. He said, but I want you in the years you have left to seek this with all of your heart and excel in it. He said, when your time comes to go to heaven, I want at your funeral for it to be said, these three things marked this pastor. And this is what he said. Number one, he said, I want you to pursue purity like you've never known purity in your life. Not just do the right thing and not do the wrong thing, but let it exude from you, purity. He said, secondly, I'm calling you to pursue a new level of power, signs and wonders, gifts of the spirit. I'm calling you to walk in the greatest. He says, you feel weaker than you've ever felt in your life physically. But I want you to pursue power so that every place you go, power will drip off of you. And this is the third thing he said. And I want you to pursue my presence so that when you walk into a room, people don't say Stephen's in the room. They say Jesus is in the room. Now, loved ones, I, you say, Pastor, you're just proud telling us that. No, this is an act of humility when I think of how Poorly, I represent those things right now. But I have committed in the days ahead, I'm going to seek purity. I'm going to seek power. I'm going to seek presence. That will be my identity. And, and loved ones, I don't have any special connection to the Lord any more than you have. But God is calling you to move in close enough and say, Lord, what do you want me to look like? He's touching churches. What do you want me to look like? Guys, I'm calling you to be a disciple. To worship, to work, to war, to witness. It will never be the same. Don't try to go back. Don't try to go back. You say, but I'm serving the Lord. I don't know what I can do different. Take Elisha as an example. I'm standing up because that will be the illusion that I'm over. <laughs> Elisha was a phenomenal man of God, had a prophetic call upon his life. But when Elijah came to Eli Elisha, Elisha took his robe, his mantle, and threw it over Elisha. And Elisha knew this was a call not to get right with God, but this was a call to move up higher. And loved ones, I know you love the Lord. I know that you're serving the Lord. But I want you to be open to a call to come up higher. He said, let me go and take care of some business with my parents. And Elijah said, go. 
he, he wasn't wanting him to just walk away from his parents. Now there were some people that used that as an excuse in the New Testament. Let me first go and bury my, my, my parents. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. It, it, that man, he didn't have a funeral to attend to. He said, well, when my parents are gone, maybe I can do it then. Let the dead bury the dead. But Elijah said, go. So he went, took care of telling mom and daddy bye. He came back. He had 12 yoke of oxen. He was working it. It was probably part of his inheritance. He breaks up the, the yoke and builds an altar. He slaughters the oxen. And it was his way of saying, I've served God all my life. But now he has all of me. My plans are no longer mine. I'm looking one direction and I have made the last independent decision I will make for the rest of my life. Loved ones, I, I know you're a Christian, although if you're here and you're not a Christian, come to the prayer, the prayer teams and tell them I want to know Jesus. They'll help you. If you're listening on, online and you don't know Jesus, call the number that will be on the screen in a few minutes and they'll lead you to the knowledge of the Lord. I'm not saying let's all get saved. I'm saying let's all sacrifice our oxen. I'm saying let's all break up our plows because there is a great, big, beautiful tomorrow to borrow words from Walt Disney. The harvest, the harvest, the harvest Jesus says, I need disciples that will pay the price. It could be that there's some of us here that we've known Jesus for a long time, but we've never paid the price to really be a disciple. We've got communion. I've, I've talked so long. Pastor Corey, could I impose on you to come and, and do communion for us just so they hear a different voice than mine? During this time of communion might be the opportunity for you to surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Let's seal the deal today. <laughs>